Miles, it is week seven of the podcast versus the Arizona Cardinals. The great Seahawks rode their mighty steeds into victory. How are you, my friend? Tristan, it's great to be with you. Coincidentally, it's week seven of the podcast and it's week seven of the NFL season. I noticed that. that. Complete coincidence. I We did not plan that. Um, that's just kind of the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. And it, it is, I think, really fair to reach out to the haters, right, as, as we like to, and just rub it in their faces. Here we are in week seven, talking, recording, eventually publishing content, which I hear is a really important word these days in, in 2023. And the haters, they're miserable right now. I can't imagine. In fact, my heart goes out to them because um, it would be hard to be a hater when you see Miles and Tristan on top the way we are right now. So um, yeah, I mean, you know, prayers and thoughts to all the haters. The haters are hating. Meanwhile, we are content to make content. That's that's it, folks. And the cycle continues. Um, This was a fun game. This was a very fun game. A fun game, really. I, it felt like a grind in the second half. We were just, uh, for the record, counted up all the points this time accurately this week. Seahawks ended up with 20 points. You can start at one. You can go to two. They got up to 20. Cardinals ended up with 10. That gives the Seahawks the win. I thought that we were really, it was really just kind of grinding out the clock for a lot of the second half. Uh, but I, at the same point, you know, getting a, a multi-possession win over any team in the NFL, it's hard to be disappointed with that. But I felt a little more bummed out <laughs> in some ways compared to last week's 17-13 loss. It, it felt like a worse game, but we ended up getting the win. Yeah, you worst know, performance. The, so the one funny thing that s- stood out to me, I was expecting, you know, I went in with, I thought I knew what the stat was going to be, being that, I was like, man, this was a time of possession game. The Seahawks dominated the time of possession in this game. And that's why it just kind of looked like an ugly run first game, right? Gino didn't have to throw that much. I think, what, he was 18 for 24. It was just one of those games. You know, we dominated the time of possession. Do you know what the time of possession was? I do not. It was um, 30. (laughs) I think we possessed the ball for for 30 minutes and they possess the ball for 29 minutes. I think it was 30, 30 and 29, 30 or something like that. Basically it was perfectly 50, 50. Like we did not win the time of possession whatsoever. And as I was watching, I watched this game three times and every time I'm like, man, we always have the ball in this game. Like we're dominating time of possession. It was, we didn't, it was a 50, 50 split, which completely ruins my whole point. I had a, I had a really strong point about how Ugly games like this, you play sometimes and, you know, you muddy it up, but you dominate the time of possession and, you know, you come out on top. And I think that was the plan. And we did come out on top, but we certainly didn't dominate the time of possession. Okay, you dropped a bombshell in there. You watched this game three times. I thought I was I thought I was dedicated to the pod. This that is a that's a bombshell. It's maybe. Maybe it doesn't say much about me. By the way, here's the official time of possession. The Seahawks had it 30 minutes, 32 seconds. Um, the Cardinals had it 29 minutes, 28 seconds, which I mean, it's just, it's really funny. We, we really dominated the time of possession. 
we did a lot with those 32 seconds. Uh, the first thing that I came away with from this game, I think in in Seahawks history, with DK Metcalf out of this game, I think this will go down as it was a dual emergence party. Jackson Smith and Jigba and Jake Bobo. We have the, I feel like the fan base has been rooting for them uh, through the first six weeks, but there hasn't been a ton of, it's been about hope. It hasn't necessarily been a ton about what's happened on the field. And they both, they they played as real wide receivers. They both had nearly identical stat lines. JSN had four catches for 63 yards and a touchdown. Bobo, four catches, 61 yards and a touchdown. And you know, a 60-yard day, that's a 1,000-yard season. That's kind of how it breaks down. A 1,000-yard season, it's a huge number for a wide receiver. Then you look at 60 yards per game, doesn't feel like very much, but uh, neither of those guys had done that before in their careers, and suddenly they both stepped in at the same time. You did not really feel that you didn't really feel DK's absence that much, and uh, to me, it really hammered home to me that um, this is a rebuilding project that we're watching right now. It's just going so well that they're in the middle of the playoff hunt. But to think that one of our featured defensive players is a rookie, Devin Witherspoon. Uh, who we'll get to later. Another uh, now you. It's only been a few weeks with Devin, but it's just kind of like, oh, there he is. You know, having a, another completely phenomenal game, and then to have two rookie wide receivers, one of them undrafted, just kind of step in. Th- that's the kind of thing that a rebuilding team does, and I think this is a rebuilding team. It just looks different from most rebuilding projects because everything is going well enough that. We got a pretty good lock on a playoff spot. If you look at the NFC in the in the wild card picture, there's not a lot of competition on the Seahawks' heels already this early in the season. And so, yeah, it was a great day by both of them. Obviously, huge fan favorite, especially Bobo, huge fan favorites. I appreciated that JSN on the touchdown. By the way, you saw a look of relief on his face. It wasn't he didn't go nuts. I you know not that I I like when players go nuts, but I also thought just from him, it showed that he had maybe a quiet, studious professional side to be like, geez, it's, I, I wanted one of these earlier. It's been a little too long, but glad I got this now and on to the next one. I'm, I'm so happy I finally got mine. Yeah, no, I, I felt the same thing. My favorite thing about the GSN touchdown was how wide open he was, which I know, of, of course, man, that's you know, great point. But the whole point of JSN, what what we heard about him in training camp, is that he's such a natural route runner and that his routes are so far superior that that's what you're going to get. You're going to get open. So it's not, I guess my point being that it's not so much that JSN was open because of, you know, just a total broken down coverage. I think a lot of it was due to the fact that he he ran a very good route. And, and I think JSN at his best is finding himself wide open like that, where you think, how, you know, how is he wide open? How did they let that happen? Um, and I think that's his skill set. I couldn't agree more though. What a fun, what a fun thing. And, you know, it's funny. You bring up such a great point about the rebuild. I hadn't thought about a rebuild for a long time because it's been going so insanely well um, and actually my, my snap count, funny enough, uh, 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 portion of this later on is, is basically about that. Um, so we're very much on the same page. It's incredible though, 
I guess rebuilds are pretty great when you just get a bunch of absolute studs. I mean, I, I rebuilding suddenly becomes super fun instead of this kind of slog that you have to go through over the last two years. Um, and yeah, I mean, the Bobo catch, what a beautiful moment. Um, I mean, you can almost hear the entire city just kind of chuckling and just the happiness of it. Um, one thing that stood out to me about Bobo, uh, I think it was his first catch of the game. It was he was going down the sideline and he just ran such a beautiful route. And even watching it, it's that first catch, I think it was a 30 yard uh, catch is the first one he made um, down the left sideline. And he 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 runs this route where he's going in a straight line, fakes in, goes out. And as I'm watching it in real time, I'm thinking to myself, man, this guy's not running very fast. And suddenly he's wide open on that because his route was just so good. It's crazy. I mean, a lot like other slow wide receivers out there like that just they run a different kind of way and it just works. And I mean, yeah, Jake is is such a cool story Um, for me. My big takeaway was Jordan Brooks. I thought Jordan Brooks had his best game of the year. Um, Funny enough, only played 70 percent of the snaps in this game. Jordan did. And yet I felt his presence throughout the entire game. There's one play in particular um, where uh, Dobbs can't find anyone. He rolls to to his left and it looks like Dobbs is going to have an easy first down, or at least that's what it kind of looked like to me. And as you watch it from the middle of the screen, suddenly like a, like a heat seeking missile, Jordan Brooks is just on an intercept course and wraps him up enough time for his buddies to get there. They, they tackle him. I think, um, uh, Taylor was there with him. I know Jamal Adams was in the neighborhood and now suddenly, you know, it was a, it was a tackle for a loss and it's a, a, maybe a small play in the game for me. It just felt massive because of how fast Jordan Brooks looks. He, he truly looks like a sideline to sideline type guy. And I mean, man, you think about the injury he tore his ACL in December. Um, actually maybe it was January. It was the last game of the year last year. I mean, it is crazy how fast he's come back and it's not like, yeah, you know what? Jordan's back and it's great to have him back, but he's not as fast as he used to be. This dude is faster than ever. I mean, Jordan Brooks, it looks like he's ascending into the next level of his game. And to me, my, my, my favorite thing about the story I think is, it occurs to me that Jordan is really playing his his true position, meaning Bobby's out there being the captain, calling the plays, kind of being the general on the field. And it seems like it's allowing Jordan just to play fast and just to just to go and just to have fun and and be completely disruptive and dominant. Um, but now when you start thinking about it, man, like the weapons on this defense that are playmaking, difference-making, dominant players, it, it's like every week it just gets a little longer. I mean, instantly you felt the impact, obviously, of Witherspoon when he came on, on the scene. Um, Adams, every week you feel his impact, and I think it's really clear to, to feel that. Obviously, we just said Brooks. Boye Mafe is a constant impact, and that's not even talking about like Quantre Diggs is playing great. Um, you know, uh, Bobby Wagner is playing unbelievably well, like the, uh, Jaron Reed, like across the team, 
there's impact guys, but to me, just in particular, Brooks, Witherspoon, Adams, Mafe, it just seems like those guys are becoming those headache difference making weapons that are problems. Yes, and this is like the third or fourth game in a row where the, the it it would be it would if you told the week one version of us after that twenty point loss to the Rams, like oh by the way, by the middle of the season, the defense is going to be have dominant performances for a month straight. I mean, they all, I know Dobbs and the Cardinals offense is not the best team of all time, but still allowing only one hundred forty six passing yards is pretty stellar against any NFL opponent, and uh, yeah. They just keep on getting better as they go along. And I feel like Clint Hurt is really good at throwing something exotic at the opponent at just the right time with kind of his play calling. There was the Devin Witherspoon sack that ultimately got called back for a penalty, but it seemed like he was really waiting for the moment and really knew when to kind of play that card that he had in his back pocket the whole game. It was pretty late in the game, right? It was the fourth quarter. And it was like, man, he's been sitting on that all game to finally send Witherspoon. You know, there's no way as a Cardinals offensive player that you're still thinking about that potential, you know, even though they probably talked about it during the week and he got home. He got home fast. Yeah, I was, I jumped out of my chair um, and was screaming. I think I hit uh, the guy next to me who I was watching the game with. I mean, like I, that felt good. And I mean, yeah, I mean, look at Jordan Witherspoon's stat line. It, it doesn't is not even complete, right? It's it's missing an interception that he got by all rights, and it's missing a sack. Um, he yeah, he was all over the place. It is so freaking fun to watch that guy. Um, to watch that guy go. You hit the guy next to you. You threw all your forks away, and you said, "We're only spoons in this household from this point forward. No more forks. We're a spoon family." Uh I did notice what we talked about a lot last time was trouble in the red zone. And this and to the Seahawks credit, they, they got the win uh, without solving this problem again. I got the breakdown of how the red zone went here. So drive number one, great solution to this. The Jackson Smith and Jigba touchdown. That was a 28-yard throw. Completely avoid the red zone just by passing all the way through it. No red zone plays. Second possession. Second time, or the first time they actually get into the red zone was the Jake Bobo touchdown, which was an 18-yard throw. So they just get to the edge of the red zone, and their very first red zone play of the day is the 18-yard touchdown. Okay, but then their first drive to start the second half, they're up 14 to 10 at this point. They drive all the way down, and ultimately they're, they, they get to the 11, and then they have seven plays in a row. For only eight total yards. They get from the 11 up to the one, but then they get pushed back to the three. That was pretty rough. They get to the red zone a second time in the second half. They have one two-yard play, and then it's the Geno Smith interception on the next play. So all told, including the Jake Bobo touchdown for 18 yards, there were 10 red zone plays that went a total of 28 yards with one touchdown and one interception. So so credit to the Seahawks that this didn't between that and the minus three turnover margin, this this should have been a loss, really. I mean, those that's really bad. This this issue hasn't been solved yet. And I, I'm ready for some pretty outside the box solutions. Jake Bobo's run blocking, his blocking ability in general is pretty well established. Hey, if he, if he lines up at fullback next week, I'll, I'll be happy to see it. We have these three really great tight ends. I think there's some more, especially with the short run situation. Uh, 
I think we, they can be used a little more creatively. I'm not sure if there's anything available in the trade market. Like your Marshawn Lynch's and your Garrett Blunt's um, don't really seem to be around the NFL anymore, but uh, it's definitely still an issue. And, and I, I'm ready for a little more creativity and experiments, uh, even if they go wrong in the coming weeks. The red zone does continue to be a house of horrors, doesn't it? And yeah, there's there's some oh that was a that's a Halloween episode thing for me to say right there. House of horrors. I should have some Halloween uh sound effects. Unfortunately, I don't. Um it is it has been such a problem. And I mean, you could have knocked me over with a feather when when Gino scrambles to the right, you know, jumps to get to the pylon, it's first, it's first and goal from the one yard line. You're thinking there is no way they don't score a touchdown here. I mean, it is impossible not to. You have three tries at it right here to get one yard. Um, I do wonder in that scenario if that's where they miss Charbonnet a little bit. You know, there was no running back on the team, I think, that really has kind of that north-south, get your nose in there and just hit the hole hard. Um, you know, obviously canine tried canine is a more of a finesse type runner. I think, I mean, I shouldn't say that he lowered some boom on some dudes a few times during this game, but he, he does have a little bit more wiggle in him. And I wonder, I wonder if in that scenario, they would have given Charbonnet a, a bite or two of that apple to see if he can just, you know, ram it in. Um, but it is, yeah, it, it is getting rough. I agree with you. Let's just stay out of the red zone completely. Let's. The, the touchdowns from the 28, if we can just keep getting those, um, let's stay out of that pesky red zone. It's it's no good to us. We don't like it. It doesn't like us. Let's just stay right outside or right inside of it. You know, the 18, that's, that's great. Yeah, I think the problems really are like 10 and in, not necessarily 20 to 10. It does, so all their, you know, there's, so there's Tyler Lockett. There's a lot of receiving groups around the league that are kind of short, quick guys, the Cardinals being one of them with Rondale Moore and Hollywood Brown. That's not the case for the Seahawks. And we've seen Bobo now. Both of his touchdowns are really uh, aerial battles. He's 6'4", DK's 6'4", his red zone struggles I went on about last week. Fant and Parkinson and Disley are all big guys. I think it felt a little disappointing to me how often they called run in that scenario when they have so many capable guys who you could, I think, reasonably trust to go to go up and get the ball. Even the so Gino's interception, which was a target towards Bobo, I was a little confused that he was kind of in front of the he was at the front of the goal line, kind of at the one yard area where it's like, hey, shouldn't he be at the back of the end zone to kind of you know be getting just as a play call idea? Shouldn't we kind of be relying? Because both of his, yeah, it seemed like he should be in the back, ready to go up and get a ball and not at the one yard line like that. I was a little confused why the play even had him in that area. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a bummer of a play. So to your point, and I, I just think it's really worth mentioning, you know, three turnovers. Um, it, it is so rare to win a game in the NFL when you turn the ball over three times. It, it, I honestly think it speaks to our thesis going into this game last week, which was, with the depth of the Seahawks, we're just going to outlast them. You know, like it's just, it's going to be too, there's too much of a talent discrepancy between these two teams as pesky and, and, you know, difficult as the Cardinals can be. It was just never going to be a game that they were going to be able to really stick with, I don't think. And I think that played out really, really true. 
even to the point where you have three pretty rough. I mean, especially, man, the DJ Dallas fumble, you're just giving it to him right there. I mean, that's kind of on a platter. Um, the man, the botched um, uh, snap or, or uh, you know, center center uh, QB exchange. That one really kind of breaks your heart because that's so fluky. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, just trying to force it into Bobo. It, all different. I mean, you couldn't have more of a different flavors of turnovers than the Seahawks found. You know, it was the Baskin Robbins of turnovers for the Seahawks. Um, three different, completely different fumbles uh, or completely different turnovers. But it, it speaks to the talent discrepancy that you still win that game despite turning it over that badly. Um, and and frankly, kind of shocking that they didn't turn the ball over at all. The way our guys were hitting them. Um, well, obviously, there was one turnover that we, we should have had there um, uh, from uh, from Spoon. So, yeah, I mean, I still think even though we didn't dominate the time of possession, I still tend to believe that going into this game, the plan was run the ball a lot. And, you know, I don't think it's by mistake that um, that Gino has so few attempts in this game. I just think that they went this went they went in with a game plan of this is going to be a game where we really um, feature the run and we're just going to run it over and over and over again and and just dominate the game that way. Um, My only little takeaway from that is it is good to win different kinds of games, right? Instead of just winning games with high octane offense or deep, you know, passes and all that kind of stuff to be able to win different styles of games, I think is really important as you progress through the season. And, and that's what we saw in this. This is a, this was your muddy backyard brawl, not pretty game, but you win it. Right. And you know we're go- we're going to have those big offensive games as well and it's important to win those and and to have a different style because i think if you have multiple styles in which you can fight it becomes very difficult as an opponent to you know to to match up hey you know they can beat us if they want to get down and dirty in in the running game they can beat us with their big wide receivers their their speed their precision game all that so um yeah, I I guess I have to kind of take it back. This wasn't a pretty game. It wasn't, but maybe it was beautiful because it was so ugly, you know. Well, it was even though so twenty to ten. If you were just watching that on the ticker while watching a different game, you'd be like, "Ah, oh, what happened there?" Twenty to ten doesn't really communicate that the Cardinals were never close to winning this. It just I guess felt disappointing where it was like, but the Seahawks never really closed the door. You know, yeah. the, the, the card, it was a few fluky things away from really going the Cardinals direction. Uh, but the Seahawks really had complete control of the game from start to finish. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, the, the, it was it was well in hand um, the whole time. Um, important game to win, you know, and, and you, we didn't know it going into it. But with the 49ers losing on Monday night, now suddenly this is. I mean, a really nice game to win, right? I mean, your entire, the entire NFC West lost, except the Seahawks. And when you have those moments, I mean, that's a big swing moment in the standings um, to be able to, to, to catch up on the 49ers, get a little distance away from the Rams, right? I mean, the Rams now lose another game and, and it just, it helps, you know, we, we have a little bit more breathing room here at second place. 
um, going into, you know, this kind of next section of the of the season where we're starting to see the actual Seahawks. I think it was the Sunday night game where uh, Mike Tirico was talking to Chris Collinsworth and he said, you know, you mentioned September is is kind of a liar or something like that. Basically, you know, the the early September, ah, we don't really know what we have. Now we're starting to actually see who these teams are. And and I think that's the case with this defense. We're starting to see the the character and the personality of this defense and the dominance of this defense. And it's not September. I mean, we're into October. We, we're deep into October, for goodness sakes. We're starting to really feel what this team is becoming. And I think you're seeing that around the league, right? You're starting to see... Um, some of the chinks in the armor with some teams and then some of the dominance. I mean, the Eagles continue to look dominant. They continue to just ascend. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, I, I don't exactly know where we stand in the league right now. I think maybe we're the, the third or fourth best team in the NFC wet or in the NFC, I should say. Um, but there's definitely, we're starting to see the separation in the league. Um, with what well, you, you mentioned about the Hawks coming into the game with a plan to run it, you, you're probably right. And they really turned up the running in the second half. It felt like a lot of that was very ineffective to me. What I wanted to see, I remembered myself talking to this microphone after the Lions win in week two and getting all jacked up about how we had these three tight ends who were all catching the ball for long, long yardage per catch. And they were distributing it to him throughout the game. And that's really gone away. I don't necessarily think that's something that the Cardinals like took away. It seems like we're getting a lot less of those three tight end formations that the team really leaned on when they were driving down in overtime against the Lions. And I think I think the team is looking back, I mean, when the team had its best offensive performances, there were a lot more targets to the tight end. So I wrote it down. Uh again, so the best two games offensively were against the Lions and the Panthers week two and three scoring 37 points in both of those games against the Lions 41 total passes from Gino uh, and 10 of those were targets to the tight ends to the three tight ends against the Panthers uh, unlike that Lions game they had to lead for most of the Panthers games so they didn't necessarily have to pass it still had 36 attempts Will Disley was out of that game due to injury. They still had nine targets to the tight ends, though, out of 36. Then looking at uh, against the Cardinals, 24 total passes, only three targets amongst the three tight ends. Uh, Disley doesn't get any, even though he's healthy and also the highest paid tight end. I think, I think when the off, I, I, I am not sure why they've really gone away from that because it, it, it didn't look like anybody had figured that out before they moved into a different direction. Yeah, I have no answer for that. I mean, it, it seems as though it, in one sense, you want to show a lot of different versions of your offense so that you become more confusing to other teams and they don't know where you're going to go. But you bring up a good point. And, you know, most of the time you keep doing something until it stops working and then you move on to the next. So it is weird that we suddenly, you know, we're not seeing the tight ends as much. And of the explosive plays in this game, um, you know, two of those explosive pl plays came from the tight ends, right? I mean, you had that huge, beautiful catch by Fant and then that that really big catch by by uh, Parkinson, which I mean, those are uh, field changing plays. Those are, you know, we're going to flip the field 
um, on both of those. And so, yeah, when you talk about those explosives, I mean, certainly the tight ends are still involved, but I agree. It's, there's something, there's something that feels stable about going to tight ends. It feels like it should be something you can just keep going back to. I don't know why, but that's always been my perception of it. Like, it seems like a very safe version of an offense. Well, especially with this group. I mean, like, there were only the three targets total. And as you mentioned, two of them were very explosive plays. You know, never mind completions. Completing two out of three is great. Two of them were, were pretty significant plays. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. 27 yard was the long for Colby. And then Noah's was 25. So, yeah, both of those counting as, as explosive plays um, all the way around. Uh, now, Tristan, hear- in the last week, you filled your garage with jars of pickles from floor to ceiling, wall to wall. It, it was pickles, an ocean of pickles. Yet for today's snap count, uh, you've gone with a different sponsor, even after, uh, kind of going really ag- pretty aggressive, I would say with, with the pickle purchasing. Yeah. You know, first of all, you have to follow your heart. Um, and you know, the heart wants what the heart wants. And this week, it just seems so obvious that snap count should be brought to you by summer snap peas, a delicious and seasonal snack for the entire family. Um, and you know, the, the beautiful thing about summer snap peas is it is a seasonal item and there's nothing like, I don't know if your mom ever grew, you know, uh, had a, 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 I guess a, is it a stock? Is that what peas grow on? I think so. Um, you know, if she ever had kind of a, a little garden with with some summer snap peas, for goodness sake, they're great. And it makes you think about the 4th of July. It makes you think about all the good times that the summer brings. And and that's what this snap count made me think of. So um, shout out to summer snap peas and and just the the great um the great memories and, and, and wonderful times that, that they really make me think of. So, um, the, you know, now is there a lot of money in summer snap peas, you know, just support getting a sponsorship from a non entity, you know, just, just a thing that grows out of the ground. The money isn't great, but it's, it's never been about the money miles. And that's why, I was so happy to, again, not so much accept their sponsorship as think about it and seek it out for the snap count. Um, but, you know, all joking aside, this snap count is really interesting to me <clears throat> because it speaks exactly to the rebuild that you brought up earlier today or earlier on the show. Um, so here's the snap counts. And you're going to notice a pattern. Bobo. 75% of the snaps. JSN, 63% of the snaps. Olu, 100% of the snaps. Cam Young, 21% of the snaps. Derek Hall, 27% of the snaps. Spoon, 100% of the snaps. Bradford, 100% of the snaps. Miles, can you tell me what all those young men have in common? I do know they all play for the Seattle Seahawks. That's one thing. The other thing... They're all rookies. I mean, think about that. Think about the incredible contribution you are getting. That's seven different rookies making a big time impact on your team. Think about it this way. In March, we had no idea who these guys were. It, It March of this year, these guys were not Seahawks. They like 
they meant nothing to Seahawks Nation. I, if I'm talking to my buddies about, hey, we're excited about the Hawks. What do you think is going to happen? Oh, Metcalf will do this. Lockett will do that. Gino's going to take a step. These gentlemen were not in our lexicon in March. And now suddenly they are making massive impacts. Bobo, I mean, l- literally all of them are becoming maybe maybe Cam Young isn't becoming a household name. That's my own kind of dorkiness. But besides Cam, they're all becoming kind of household names within Seattle. And and frankly, I'm really happy to see Cam, 21%. It's a good impact. Um, what I was tempted to do, I didn't want to do it because I wanted to keep this about this year's rookie class. But then think about if we were to look at the rest of the snap counts for all the year two players on this team, how many big contributors are on this team over the last two. So it goes back to your point of the rebuild um, that, that really we're getting massive impact from really, really young players. And I mean, you know, time to beat a dead horse one more time with a giant spoon. Um, Witherspoon currently so far this NFL season, he is the highest graded cornerback in the NFL with an 88.5% grade. That is wild. I mean, talk about it's not too big for me. No, I mean, maybe I'm too big for it. It's crazy to think. In fact, I I think we we should review the tape. I think that we even mentioned in one of the first couple of podcasts that the the level kind of the the almost the expectation is we need Witherspoon to be this year's Sauce Gardner for him to to like for him to pan out if if this draft pick is gonna pan out Miles he has to be he has to play at a Sauce Gardner level he's playing better than Sauce I mean it's crazy to think about how good this kid has been um, and and the massive impact so when we talk about big impacts on the game. All these guys are putting in the time, but they're also putting in the impact. It's also the quality of the snaps is really, really high. Yeah, man, I think with it's it is interesting to see a team like the Seahawks and the uh, the really good teams in the NFL, like the, the ones that have you know generations of winning. They really don't miss when they get into the top ten or top fifteen, and so uh, yeah, it's it's, it's very. It's very rare for the Seahawks to get into the top 10. Uh, the one that I know off the top of my head is the last two Patriots top 10 picks were Gerard Mayo and Richard Seymour, which is like 20 years ago. So it's like when they get in the top 10, they don't miss. And it's just like, you know, Pete and John have never really been in the in the top 10 scenario before. They got this gift handed to them as the Broncos lost more and more last year. And uh, wow, they nailed it. Yeah, and and the better Witherspoon plays, the more I'm willing to say, Jalen Carter, God bless you. Enjoy your time with Philadelphia, and I hope you have a wonderful career too, and I think you will. I think he is going to continue to have a great career, but you mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, it's becoming sillier and sillier to make the comparison just because they're both playing so well, and, and Spoon is playing at this next, next level. Um, and I, man, I keep going back to your words a couple of weeks ago, the energy and the style in which he plays, he's playing like a Seahawk. He he is playing the profile that they're looking for in their players, and he he matches that profile. So um, uh, Pete Carroll's words keep kind of playing back in my mind. He um, said that he reminded him of Troy Polamalu, and I was like, man, that's 
I mean, talk about high praise. Like he reminds me of one of the greatest safeties of all time. And man, you watch the way he coils and hits and is seems to be everywhere and is so multiple and play, plays on the outside, plays on the inside, um, can blitz, can, can do all of these different things. I, I get what Pete's saying. I mean, they obviously nailed this pick and and it's fun to see the impact. So I'll, I'll, that's I won't say anything else about Spoon. I, he gets he's like 50 percent of this podcast every week, which I love, but I'll just stop. That percentage is going to go up even higher now that there's you're a forkless household, I think. Literally have thrown away every fork. And and maybe next week's episode will be brought to you by Spoons. Yeah. I mean, I Big don't know. Wooden ones, small teaspoons. Yeah, they're the whole all, range. They're versatile. I mean, it's an incredibly versatile utensil. And so anyway, yeah, that's that's it. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Uh, this week's Pete Nugget is brought to you by uh, a California mining prospector who found a gold nugget. That's who's sponsoring this week. I noticed uh, when Pete talked with Brock and Salk on Monday morning, I felt the unevenness of the win. We talked about that it was an ugly game. I'd be curious to know if he has a different message behind the scenes. You can kind of feel the NFL coaches are maybe most critical of their team when they win ugly. They kind of have like the the credit available to like dig into their team on like an ugly win and, and criticize them. But public facing, Pete did none of that. There was there was no kind of picking at the win or, or noticing what went wrong. It was just pure positivity. And, it, and it, I noticed the same thing after the Lions game where I was kind of like, Man, we kind of ju- just got away with that one in overtime, but he was he was over the moon with it. And I think I have undervalued, especially at, at, in recent years, that like a win is a win, and it really doesn't matter how you did it. That's what he cares about is is he got the win, and yeah, there's things to work on, but he's he was just concerned about the win. You know, you, there's not an extra bonus point for winning pretty. No, it's it, it's a it's a good reminder. And yeah, I mean, Pete has always said it's not going to be easy. You know, it's not going to be pretty. And he talks about that all the time over the years. I mean, over the last decade, I've heard him say that so many times. Um, he doesn't worry about style points whatsoever. Um, he does certainly enjoy style points, but he doesn't worry about them. So no, 100% agree. Um, my Pete Nugget admittedly might be a bit of a reach. This is my intuition about Pete more than something he specifically said, but it's something I've heard him say in the past. And it's something that I really felt during the Jake Bobo catch. So, right. He, he has the beautiful toe tapping catch in the end zone, back of the end zone, and it's called incomplete, right. And, um, or called out of bounds and, and Pete throws the challenge flag. During the press conference, Pete very specifically says, yeah, you know, everyone was in my ear. We felt like we had a really good shot to win it. So, I, you know, I, flew, I threw the flag. Um, when he did it in real time, I looked at uh, at the folks I was uh, I was watching the game with and I was like, you know, Pete does this from time to time. He talks about wanting to compete for his players in those moments. And so like, hey, we think this is a touchdown. We think this is one for Jake. Like, let's. Let's give it our very best shot. You know, let's take another look. And the way he thinks about that is 
yeah, we want to compete our butts off for you. And we want to, we really want to try to, you know, get this call for you because you made the effort as a player. And it occurred to me, Jake Bobo seems to be so loved on the team. He's kind of a mascot. And psychologically, when Pete decides, yeah, I'm throwing this challenge flag, I I almost feel as though in Pete's mind, it it was a win-win. If I throw it and we, you know, we win, then cool. We got the challenge, touchdown, you know, great. If I don't, I had, I had Jake's back and I, and like, this is a young player. It's his first, you know, like this is a big touchdown for him. Like, let's go, like, let's, let's get him this touchdown. Um, and so my Pete nugget is that the Pete threw that challenge flag, not just to get a touchdown, but I think, I think to compete for, for kind of this guy who's, I don't know, he's got a certain energy that the other players seem to love. And I think he did it. I think there's a dual purpose for, for throwing that flag. So I might be, it, it would be so funny if Pete could like be listening to this. He's just like rolling his eyes, like you idiot. No, that has nothing to do with that. But I, I think it does. I think that Pete likes to kind of go out on a limb for people a little bit because it's a statement. I got nothing. I think you're so right. Yeah. I, I, as you said that I could, I could see that I was feeling all that as it was happening uh, during the game, but I didn't, you know, consciously think that, but I, I think you're right. He's, he's not crunching a number up there. He's, he's challenging with his heart, but in a way that doesn't feel like old school in a way that feels, yeah. Supportive of, of your guy. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, do you have a trivia, uh, a trivia for us? And, and also, and I, I mean, I haven't seen any sponsorship of the trivia, so I don't know if you're paying for this one. If I'm paying for this trivia, have you lined up any sponsors this week for trivia miles? Between the, the pickles, the snap peas, the old, the old prospector with his gold nugget in his pocket. Uh, you I think they can cover it. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I was, it's been a lot to keep track of this week. Okay. There's a lot of emails going back and forth and, and telegraphs to the old mining prospector as well. You have to meet people where they are. And he is in the, I mean, he's in the gold rush. So, I mean, that's, <laughs> he took a train to get there. I mean, it's pretty cool. But yeah, he's, and he's doing really well, by the way. He sends you his best uh, from California. Thank you. Full stop. Um, I have <laughs> been enjoying... Seahawks stories hosted by Steve Rabel and Jim Zorn. They're talking about the olden days, the olden days of the Seattle Seahawks starting in 1976. Holy catfish. I know what you're thinking. If they're having, if they're doing this show now, which they started in the last few weeks, does that mean this, then this show is not the world's only Seahawks podcast? Hmm. No. That's just guys talking. This is about the Seahawks. That's that a good just, dis- yeah. It's a good distinction uh, because I would hate to think that we are competing against um, those guys because I wouldn't want to take any listeners away from Raves. Um, and I wouldn't want him to feel any undue pressure that we're breathing down his neck um, because this is all, you know, in the words of Earl Thomas, this is all about love and let, let, let's let love love, you know, so. Um, you know, there's no competition. I don't want, and also, man, I don't want Seahawks nation to think there's a competition between us and Rabes. Um, because listen, he's an institution. We all love him. He's the best. I mean, holy catfish. 
we don't want any competition, and this is the world's only Seahawks podcast. Kind of at the same time, I think you, I think you get it. This is the only one. Yeah. Um, so I've I've been uh, taking a look back through the Seahawks all time record book, and uh, this is a name. Uh, this is not an act. The, the answer to this question is not an active Seahawk, but this is one your your Seahawks history goes quite a bit bit deeper. I wonder if this is one you could pull out of the old memory books. Who is the franchise leader in games played as a Seahawk all time? I'll let you know as you're thinking right now. Our current leader right now is Bobby Wagner. He's got 157 games played. That is good for 13th all time. He'll, if he plays every game this year, he'll be up to 8th. So he's at 157. This guy with the most games played, he's up at 218. That's not going to get broken for... Until Jake Bobo does it 20 years from now, uh, nobody's going to touch 218 for quite a while. Man, this is a really, really, really good one. Um, Okay, I got it. I got it. I think I got it. Walter Jones. Walter Jones is my guess. It is not Walter Jones. This is a... uh... So the ant do you want the answer? Or do you want another hand at it? I, I just want first I just want you to acknowledge Walter Jones was a good guess. Walter Jones was a good guess. I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you. That's 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 number one. Can you give me a hint? Give me a position that he played. Uh nose tackle. That's a tough one. Is it it's couldn't be Cortez Kennedy. It is not Cortez Kennedy. He 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 didn't quite have the longevity. I didn't think so. Yeah, I didn't think it'd be Cortez. Um, Sam Adams? Uh, so, you ready for it? Yeah, 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 yeah. The answer is Joe Nash. Do you know Joe? Do you remember Joe Nash? I don't. I wish I did. I With all my heart, <laughs> so I wish I did. So, this guy plays nose tackle for the Seahawks from 1982 to 1996. Missed just a handful of games. 218 all-time. Uh, number two is Max Strong with 201. So he's, he's a season plus over Max Strong. I, and yeah, that it seemed like the whole defensive line in the 80s that kind of had the same front three for the entire decade. Um, Jacob Green, I apologize for getting, for getting number three right now, but to have the same front three for a decade is, is really, so I don't know how this guy did it for like 15 years in a row. And there we go. Joe Nash. Do you want some Jacob Green uh, trivia? Yes. <laughs> now, I've looked really good when you read the questions. To have them come back at you, oh boy. Now I feel um, the heat. Uh, you might know this might be, a, 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 um, this might be a, an underhand toss right to you. You might hit a home run. Can you tell me uh, Green's uh, son-in-law, the name of his son-in-law? And you know it. You, you know this person. I mean, you don't know him personally, but. Michael Jordan. Jacob Green, son-in-law, former Seahawk. Believe it or not. Oh. Former Seahawk defensive lineman, believe it or not. Wow, within the family. A leader, and also his name has a color in it. And he's one of my favorites. Red Bryant? Red Bryant is married to Jacob Green's daughter. Isn't that unbelievable? That is unbelievable. Can just you, meet? It feels like with the Seahawks, a lot of guys stay in Seattle. Even these guys from the 70s. They've kind of stayed around the area. Is that what happened? Just people 
we'd, we'd milling have around. To, we'd have to invite Red on the show uh, to to get the full story. I don't know if he met his lovely wife before or after becoming a Seahawk. So I I, I do not know. Um, but I do know that Jacob Green's son-in-law is Red Bryant, which is just un- two legends, two beloved legends. Couldn't buy a beer in the city if they wanted to. And, you know, there it is. There's there's nice having a little trivia I can throw right back at you. That felt good. I like it. Oh, that was good. Yeah. The, the color really uh, narrowed it down. A, a color in the name really. Uh, there's only so many options there. Um, you know, something I didn't look up and I'm doing it very quickly, uh, because, you know, we've been kind of keeping track of how Russ has been doing. Did you happen to take a peek at the Denver game? Uh, I, did, I saw the score and I was just like, okay. I mean, the Packers, it, it was like, all right. Okay. So the Broncos have two wins. They've both been these little one possession wins over other teams that are really struggling. I, that's maybe not fair, but I kind of counted it as like a, that's a win that a losing team has, you know? Seven, if, if yeah. 17, 19, um, Russell, 194 yards and a touchdown. Um, I'm sure Sean Payton did a terrible job coaching it. Um, that's, that's my whole analysis. That was the world's only Broncos podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Literally, actually, it, it might actually be because no one <laughs> wants to talk about that team. Oh, man. Broncos country. Let's ride. Um, week eight. Uh, what's happening on week eight, Miles? What are we doing? Week eight. And th- look, this for for the year, to be honest, for the whole year, this is the one seeing the schedule at first. This is the one I go. Ah, geez. Playing the Cleveland Browns, they are hosting them. At the time, at the start of the year, Deshaun Watson was their starting quarterback. I really hate what the Browns have done with shining, signing Deshaun Watson, that whole story. It's it's really bad. I think I kind of stopped tuning into the NFL quite a bit last year, actually. Honestly, when I look back at it, it was kind of the Deshaun Watson story that I was like, uh, I I don't have the stomach for this anymore. Now, I just I feel really bad for like this all the really great defensive players the Browns have. I feel really bad for their fan base that they just have so much committed to this guy. There's you know, the whole story is, is just really weird. Here's the thing though. The Browns, so the Browns last week, they're coming they so through their first 5 games, they had allowed the fewest total offensive yards of like any team through 5 games of all time, right? And Deshaun Watson's struggling, and they're cycling through these backup quarterbacks. Then they win last week, 39-38 over the Colts. Uh, so, oh, by the way, their passing defense is allowing 149 yards a game for the whole season. This is including after giving up 38 Whoa, to the Colts. That's crazy. The Browns are just coming in and playing truly chaotic games, though. As, as crazy as it sounds, they scored 39 points. They played a really bad offensive game, and Miles Garrett... And their field goal kicker, Dustin Hopkins, pretty much won them this game on their own. So here's how the Browns got to four touchdowns last week. Number one, second play from scrimmage, a 69-yard run. It just breaks. He takes it to the house. Okay. Touchdown number two, Miles Garrett has a strip sack. They get the ball with 36 yards to go. All right, march it in. And you're saying this Miles Garrett gentleman, he's, he's fairly good at football? He's a good football player, you'd say? Uh, 
<laughs> well, what do you think about touchdown number three? Miles oh, no. Garrett strips strips Gardner Minshew in the end zone again, and they just fall on it for touchdown number three. Oh, touchdown man. number four, they actually do go on their first drive of the day. This is their first drive of the day to, to end the game. They go on an 80-yard drive. There's some very controversial calls against the Colts' defense at this point. They have a sack fumble that gets erased for a penalty. Then P.J. Walker f- throws four straight incomplete passes. They get help with another <laughs> penalty along the way. And then finally they run it in. So they, they scored 39 points, but they barely had an offensive drive in the game. Here's this. Dustin Hopkins, he has 18 field goal attempts on the year so far. Two of them have been inside the 40-yard line. They can barely get a close field goal. So he's made 16 of 18 field goals. Only two of those 16 makes have been inside the 40. Just for comparison, Jason Myers, he's had 17 total attempts. Ten of them have been inside the 40 because we can't score in the red zone. They had the opposite problem. They can't get to the red zone to, to, to get Dustin Hopkins a short field goal. P.J. Walker, for his career, this doesn't make any sense. Because it looks like Deshaun left the game very early with an injury. It looks like it might be P.J. again. Career P.J. Walker. Five touchdowns thrown. 14 interceptions. Uh, the Seahawks D-backs, they need to be practicing catching this week. Because the P.J. was very careless with the ball. The ball is going to be coming to them. Five touchdowns, 14 interceptions. Five and three career record as a starter, which doesn't even count this last game, which he didn't start. He came in at the end of the first quarter. Five and three career record as a starter with five touchdowns, 14 interceptions. Despite the Browns' really good defense, I th- and it's going to be a chaotic game. I do think, though, it's the Browns' offense cannot sustain a, a full drive. I do think the Seahawks should win this game. Don't think I'll be saying the same thing week nine, but I do think the Seahawks should get this one. Um, as you were talking, I had to look this up because I had to be reminded of it. And I agree with you. I was disgusted by the Brown signing of Deshaun Watson. And it just, it, it's a bad look. I, there's, I think we are actually seeing the, the physical incarnation of what bad karma looks like. And it's just happening before our eyes. I mean, it's almost like the only way I can describe how bad he has been, um, and uh, so I just had to look this up. The Browns made history when they paid Deshaun Watson, signing the polarizing quarterback to an unprecedented, fully guaranteed five-year, $230 million contract after already spending multiple draft picks, including three first rounders to acquire him. Think about how costly that was on so many different levels to, to go after Deshaun Watson as the Browns. Like, we talk about what a disaster the Russell Wilson trade has been for uh, um, for the Denver Broncos. Think about this Deshaun Watson trade. I mean, it is horrific. And to your point, it's a good team. I mean, this is a great defense. This is an elite, really, really good defense. Miles Garrett is, I mean, what's the word? I mean, he's elite. He's insane. He's, he's Aaron Donald-esque. I mean, he's... He is at the top of his game, and you, you can only think that it's bad mojo, bad karma, whatever you want to call it, that is kind of biting the entire city of Cleveland on the butt um, when it comes to this, how bad this trade was. Um, it's it, it's incredible, and you do kind of wonder. 
I mean, it. all of that said, it's crazy to think, obviously, Deshaun Watson's a human and he hears all of this stuff. And you wonder how much it just takes a toll on him eventually, where he's like, I mean, he is constantly hearing how hated he is around the country. It's crazy. I, I wonder... I wonder if that affects him. Obviously, taking a year off doesn't help. Um, he's injured, so that doesn't help either. There's a lot of maybe factors here, but man, talk about something just not working. And uh, yeah, it's. I think it's going to be um, a really fun game, um, but let's not bury the lead. There's one very important thing about this game that I, I honestly am insanely excited about throwback jerseys this week. We, we see the old school talking about Jacob Green talking about Max Strong bringing it in the kingdom back in the day. We, we're going to see the original jerseys, which I'm pretty stoked about. Now, when you say original jerseys, do you mean for the Seahawks or do you mean you'll be dressing up as that kind of Cleveland Brown elf with the stocking feet and the stocking cap? Which, which way is the throwback going? On well, Sunday? I mean, literally every night that's my outfit when I go to bed. Um, it's the stocking feet, the stocking cap because I'm bald. So I don't want my head to get cold. So I have to wear a stocking cap. That's pretty obvious. Um, and so, yeah, that's my typical evening wear evening attire, a uh, lounge wear, I think is what they call it these days. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I mean, I will, you know what I'm going to do miles. I have, have you ever seen my, um, I have, uh, um, I'm totally blanking on the word right now. The 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 our audience is intimidating me. I can't think of it. A placemat. I have Seahawks placemats that are like they're the old school Seahawks logos. The placemats are coming out this week, and I'm gonna watch the game. And whatever I'm eating will be on those placemats, obviously with a plate. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm pretty excited about the original logo coming out. It's gonna look great. It's gonna be awesome. People are gonna be jacked about it. Um, and the most important thing, the Seahawks will sell a lot of merchandise, um, which is really what makes this whole thing tick. So, you know, we're, we're happy for um, the the CFO of the Seahawks um, as he starts really just counting all of those dollars coming in from from uh, from the faithful. We'll be back next week with uh, there'll be a lot of Excel spreadsheets. Yeah. Yeah. Next week. Um, any concluders for the audience before we. Say adios. No, no. Sometimes there's no conclusion. <laughs> Sometimes there is no conclusion, folks. Um, thank you, Miles. Thank you, audience. Oh, hey, let me just say this. Shout out to Germany, our audience in Germany. I've been meaning to do this. I don't know who you people are, but I love you. And I love that you're listening out there. So shout out to our German friends, our Belgium friends, our friends in the UK. The international audience, man. I mean, how freaking cool is that? Go Hawks. In fact, and you know what? This is our promise. Next week, we will know how to say Go Hawks in German. Yes. And just like uh, Jake Bobo encountered last week, there is there is no way for them to get in contact with us. But this th we're almost at the level of being able to communicate one-to-one -one with our audience. Maybe we'll, we'll get there soon. But uh, yeah, we see you. Go the adventures of the the adventures of the Blitzkrieg. Oh, in Germany. I like it. I like it. All right. See you later. See ya.